Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast of my freshly written speculative fiction and the often stranger-than-fiction stories behind it. This week, for our 141st episode, the 31st of Season 2, A Season of Short Works, I've written a story that I know will ultimately become a novella, whether it is chosen as the winner of our Season 2 contest or not. To begin with, the setting in this story, and two of the animal characters, are real. I'm a big fan of the Cincinnati Zoo, which is one of the oldest in the country, and one of the city's best attractions. I highly recommend checking it out, if you're ever down this way. Since my first visit, I've decided that my dream job, in an alternate fantasy version of my life, would be to become a cheetah trainer there. However, my favorite animal was a caracal, whose namesake appears in this story. Unfortunately, she passed away of old age a little over a year ago. The lion in tonight's story, however, is real too, and you can still visit him in person, should you so choose. I assure you that, unlike his fictional namesake in this tale, he is still very much alive and happy and loves the attention. I've included photos of both of them in the show notes. Also, for at least six or seven years now, I've tossed around the idea of writing a longer piece about the kind of dystopian nightmare that America could become if our nation continues along the current pathway of selling our land and other resources to outside interests. The notion came to me initially after reading Ted Koppel's book, Lights Out, an excellent piece of journalism that warns about the dangers of cyber attack on America's power grids that could cause blackouts of weeks to months and lead to a total collapse of infrastructure afterward. I've included a link to the publisher's page for the book, as well as an interview with Koppel about it in the show notes. Last, unlike paranormal or supernatural menaces, which frighten only within the context of fiction, The threat of large-scale cyber attack looms as a more realistic source of potential horror with every passing year, as the world becomes increasingly dependent on technology. Thus, the background for this story occurs after America sells out control of its energy interests to a foreign investment firm during a severe recession. During the transfer of ownership that follows, a massive cyber attack plunges the nation into darkness and anarchy. The focus of that longer work will be more on the protagonist of this story, as well as the caracal who accompanies her, as they struggle to survive in a fallen America. What you're about to hear now in this tale is the first chapter in a series of tragedies that befall them along the way. I call this story Old King John, a short story by Vivian Catfield. There wasn't enough to keep the gators fed anymore. Sloan was certain of that. She'd been tracking what remained of each animal's dwindling food supply on spreadsheets as it was distributed out in daily rations for two months. There were exactly one dozen frozen chickens left in the allotment for the zoo's eight alligators. One thawed, raw bird per animal left only four, and two of those needed to go to the pair of crocodiles. Today's feeding would buy them about a week of time to figure out what to do with all ten reptiles. There were 
only three options, all of which the zoo's administration team had discussed in previous meetings. They could let them go, they could let them starve, or they could start letting them eat live chickens from the children's barnyard exhibit. There simply wasn't any more meat available to give them. Glancing through the tracking spreadsheets for their other remaining carnivores, Sloan hoped to find an overlooked side of beef or a random pork leg somewhere that could be portioned out to buy a few more weeks. However, she found nothing. It had all started the day after Labor Day, when the zoo's executive board called off a special all-staff meeting to discuss the importance of accounting for every serving of each animal's food closely due to rising costs. Then, in October, all of the news outlets started running stories warning of shortages for certain food items that had to be refrigerated, including most meat, egg, and dairy products, as well as chocolate candy, which caused the biggest outcry of all during the week of Halloween. Remembering the weirdly random shortages of common items like toilet paper during the most recent pandemic, Sloan had gone out and stocked up on staples. Dried beans, rice, flour, canned meats and vegetables, plus several cases of her usual workday snacks like oatmeal raisin energy bars and her favorite trail mix with dried cranberries and pistachios instead of the more common raisins and peanuts. Also, the two largest bottles of good tequila blanco that she could find, tucked beneath an entire second cart filled with paper products and cookout supplies. The supermarket cashier laughed at Sloan, who'd come up to the checkout lane pushing one basket ahead and dragging another behind her. So what if the railroad workers announced a strike three weeks before Black Friday? It wasn't like anyone was going to perish from not being able to wade through throngs of shoppers in search of half-priced sweaters and lost leader off-brand electronics. They could still buy all that stuff online, and all the supermarket chains were confident that they could rely on their trucking teams to maintain supplies. Then, gas went over 20 bucks a gallon, and everyone stopped laughing. Airlines, unable to find passengers still interested in holiday travel when fares went over five times what they'd been the year before, began canceling flights and laying off crews. By Thanksgiving, there was only one flight per day operating on each airline from the Cincinnati airport, and tickets were over $2,000 each. So Sloan decided to stay home and bake vegetarian lasagna with the last of the cheese that she had, instead of visiting her family in Charlotte. Despite dipping into their emergency fund, the zoo was unable to find any bulk suppliers of frozen meats by mid-December, and when sending staffers out with company debit cards to every grocery store in the Ohio Valley yielded almost no results, they'd switched Sloan's primary duties from her usual job of planning school education programs at the zoo to supervising animal rations full-time. A quick audit of food on hand revealed that they had enough stocked in freezers and dry storage for up to four more weeks. After that, some difficult choices would have to be made which included transferring animals to other facilities. Although the thought of losing their animals to other zoos had been painful, the harder blow came with the New Year's funding cuts. When the state and federal budgets came out, there was no money allotted for zoos at all, or for any other public education programs, which meant that the Cincinnati Zoo, 
like every other zoo in the country, would have to rely on donations alone just to keep the lights on. And the price of electricity, like everything else that year, had skyrocketed. Nevertheless, in that respect, they'd been somewhat lucky. As one of the country's oldest zoos with the strongest community support, an emergency budget meeting found that they'd been able to stay open Thursdays through Sundays and keep all of their staff, albeit for shorter hours, indefinitely. Thus, even though news of other zoos closing seemed to come almost daily, Sloan and her co-workers breathed a collective sigh of relief. Things were bad, but they would make it. Everyone agreed that things couldn't go on like this forever. Still, Sloan dreaded the noon meeting. Donations, no matter how generous, couldn't buy meat when there was no meat to buy. Something would have to be done about the alligators, and after them, the lions. Together, those two species consume the most protein, followed by the tigers and the bears. The alligators and black bears could be released into the wild. They might not adjust well, however, but at least they'd have a fighting chance. However, the lions and other big cats? Only one thing could be done with a lion that couldn't be transferred to another facility. Sloan didn't want to think about that possibility. Yet, it was hard not to. Those cats were the whole reason Sloan had moved to the city after college almost two decades ago. Even further back, it had been a chance encounter with a mountain lion, equal parts terrifying and amazing, while out in the woods of North Carolina with her grandfather that made her want to become a wildlife biologist in the first place. Sloan's Grandpa Hal had been what was known as a character in his hometown of Albemarle, about an hour east of Charlotte, where Sloan grew up. Although everyone knew Hal Whittington's real occupation was moonshining, his more mundane enterprise was operating a fishing boat rental business on Baden Lake. When Sloan was a little girl and went to visit Grandpa Hal on the weekends with her siblings, they'd usually either drive over to the state zoo in Ashboro or spend the day fishing and hiking around Uari National Park, not far from where many gold strikes were made back in the day, as Grandpa Hal used to say. There's more gold in them hills than anybody knows, or at least that they're willing to tell of, Sloan remembered him saying many times, usually after he'd fortified himself for the day's excursion with a few shots of his own brew. And one of these days, I'm going to stumble upon it. Just you wait and see. Sloan had always nodded politely, knowing that her grandpa's momentary gold fever would pass. Unlike her older brother and sister, Sloan actually enjoyed Grandpa Hal's wild tales of his life outdoors. By the time Sloan was in junior high, they'd begged off going to see him at all, but Sloan continued to visit on a regular basis. It was while on such a visit, when Sloan and Grandpa Hal were out on one of the trails, where she'd encountered the mountain lion that changed her life. Passing a nearby stream, Grandpa Hal thought he'd seen a glimmer of something in the water. Taking out the gold pan he usually brought along on hikes, he'd crouched down and begun scooping and sifting. Having long ago given up on trying to convince Grandpa Hal that if there were any gold to have been found that easily, it would have been discovered a long time ago, Sloan wandered off in boredom down what she thought was a shortcut to one of the mountain overlook points. 
Within 15 minutes, Sloane found herself on the dead end of a little-used trail. When she turned back, there it was, crouched silently in the leaves behind her, switching its tail and watching her every move with its golden eyes. A full-grown mountain lion. Sloane's heart stopped in her chest. Her first thought was to scream and run for Grandpa Hal. He always carried a rifle into the woods just in case he ran upon a snake or something more dangerous. However, even in her panicked state, Sloane stopped herself instinctually. It was something in the animal's eyes. She could feel that he was evaluating her, sizing her up. To Sloane, it felt like the kind of stare-down contest that children get into, where the loser is the one who blinks first. Hypnotized by his fierce gaze, Sloane stood her ground and their eyes locked. Her breathing slowed to match his as his sides bellowed softly in and out with each exhale. Neither she nor the big cat moved for what seemed like a very long time. Finally, he blinked very slowly at Sloane and yawned lazily, stretching his front paws out in front. Sloane noticed that his fangs were the same length as his claws, which extended from each toe like the opened blades of large folding pocket knives. Sloaney, where are you? Grandpa Hal called out from the main trail. Look here what I found. Interrupted mid-yawn, the mountain lion drew back in a flash. Then, hearing Grandpa Hal shuffling through the fallen leaves toward them, it let out something between a growl and a yip and bounded away into the underbrush. Relief flooding into her, Sloan collapsed, crying and laughing at the same time. On the way back to Grandpa Hal's old wagoneer, Sloan described her encounter with the mountain lion. You did just the right thing, Sloaney, Grandpa Hal said. Big cat like that, you gotta let him know you're just as mean as he is. Otherwise, he'll look at you like you're his dinner. A lot of people are that same way. When she returned home, Sloane spent days researching mountain lions and their behavior. Having narrowly escaped an attack by instinct alone, Sloane became intrigued as to why. A few years later, when college admissions time rolled around, she told her parents that her life's dream was to work in conservation. Although her father was sad, he'd hoped to add another Whittington to his own family business, a chain of boat dealerships throughout the state, and her mother, puzzled, as to why she'd want to work at all when they had plenty of money for her not to, eventually both of them came around. While finishing her degree in wildlife biology and conservation at NC State in Raleigh, Sloan interned at the Cincinnati Zoo as a big cat trainer. To begin with, her primary job was assisting with the daily cheetah shows, in which the zoo's three cheetahs ran around a track, chasing a lure four times a day. When Sloan was offered a permanent position as a lead trainer with the CAT program, one of the largest in the country, she was over the moon, even though it meant a permanent move away from all of her friends and family. At first, the transition had been difficult. It seemed like every person whom Sloan met in Cincinnati immediately assumed she was an impoverished, backwoods idiot upon hearing her speak for the first time with a southern accent. Once, when she was at the mall buying work clothes, a man who overheard Sloane speaking to the cashier even demanded she prove that she had a college education. 
to which Sloan's reply was producing the wallet-sized diploma from NC State, flashing it in the man's face, and then telling him to F off as she stomped out of the store, leaving her potential purchases stacked on the counter in front of the astonished cashier. After several unsuccessful tries at socialization with other recent college grads at local bars and concerts produced similarly humiliating results, Sloan gave up on trying to make friends and threw herself into her work. Within a year, she was promoted from lead trainer to educational programming coordinator. Then a few years after that, director of education. Even as her duties kept her more in the administration building, Sloan made a point to schedule herself at least several shifts a week to work with the big cats. To her, they became like a second family, almost surrogate children. Like all parents, Sloan claimed not to have a favorite, but in reality, she did. The zoo's only caracal, Josephine, whom Sloan had fed and trained since its arrival from a litter in Nashville. Like the cheetahs, Josephine was tame from daily handling since her infancy. After reading up on ancient Egyptians and their use of caracals in hunting and retrieving wild birds, Sloane had trained Josie, as she called her, to fetch fat little stuffed ducks launched from a ball machine. Showing off Josie's new skill by adding performances daily between the cheetah shows had been a big hit with crowds. Also, it had helped Sloan gain administrative approval to apply for a grant to start what would have been the zoo's first caracal breeding program in the new year by finding a mate for Josie. However, with all funding cut, now motherhood would have to wait. Passing through the Cat Canyon portion of the zoo on her way to the meeting, Sloan mentally calculated how many animals they'd have to figure out what to do with in the coming weeks. There had already been talk of allowing the trainers to take one cheetah each home and of Sloan taking possession of Josie. The cats were tame enough, but there would need to be permits obtained, not to mention the fact that they all lived in apartments. Sloan seriously doubted that large cats, no matter how friendly and entertaining, would be allowed on a lease. Then there were a pair of mountain lions who arguably could be released into the wild, despite both having been born in zoos. The transition would be difficult, but not impossible. Four Malayan tigers, who could be moved, at least temporarily, to a smaller holding facility that the Bengals owned across town from when they used to put cubs on display as mascots during game days. Thinking about the NFL stadium made Sloan wonder if they still had any hot dogs or hamburger meat in their freezers from the previous season. As usual, the Bengals hadn't gotten far in the playoffs. Sloan added a note in the to-do list on her phone to call them and check. Probably no one had considered concession stand leftovers as potential food for tigers. However, the pairs of snow leopards... Servals, palace cats, black-footed cats, and ocelots had nowhere to go. Neither did the quartet of African lions, three females and an elderly male, whom everyone referred to as Old King John, and who'd been at the zoo longer than Sloan. Pausing by the observation window as she watched Old King John pounce on a large rubber ball that shot out from beneath him and back towards his trainer, Sloan recalled that she'd seen a news item about a college somewhere, down in North Alabama that kept live lion mascots. 
There had been a big hubbub about it for a while before it was ultimately determined that the lions were well cared for. Sloane made another note in her phone to explore that option. When Sloane arrived in the meeting room, all of the board members' eyes were glued to the television. A WLWT announcer in a blue suit hovered above the ticker that announced breaking news. Setting down her water bottle and laptop, Sloane pulled up a chair to listen. Today, a final agreement has been reached between Kaiming Holdings, the largest private utilities investment firm in China, and several American energy companies, including Duke Energy, which provides electricity to millions throughout the tri-state area. As part of Kaiming's phased takeover of the power grid, authorities have been told to expect rolling blackouts in the coming days. Hospitals, college residence halls, and other highly energy-dependent facilities have been put on notice to reduce usage and to be prepared to utilize generators only at random intervals in the coming weeks, as various networks will go on and offline during this period of transition. Private citizens are highly encouraged to charge power banks and stock up on batteries for flashlights and radios, along with firewood and non-perishable canned goods, so that they will be prepared for temporary outages. The board president clicked off the television. Before anyone asks, he said, after calling the meeting to order, yes, we do have a generator system and should be able to bring it online without any need to shut down operations, at least on that account. Maintenance is in charge of it. Just one more thing in a long laundry list to worry about in this damn recession. He glared over the tops of his bifocals like a harried teacher daring any student to speak before continuing. We'll start here with inventory control. Whittington, what have you got? Sloane cleared her throat as she began to rattle off the list of what remained in storage. The list was short, so it didn't take long. Is that it? The president asked, pushing his glasses higher on his nose as he squinted at the spreadsheet that was projected through the overhead from Sloane's laptop. Sloane nodded. Okay, he exhaled slowly. So I guess that's where we are then, ladies and gentlemen. The moment we've all been waiting for. It's time to start seriously discussing relocation plans. This time, everyone had an objection, and they all began talking at once. Trying to call the meeting back to order without any success, the president pounded his gavel on the table. Then the projector image flickered, and all the lights went out. God bless America, the president snarled, turning to his assistant. Get Rick, the head of maintenance, on the line. He was on his way down to the physical plant. Tell him to get those generators going. Phone's out, too, his assistant replied. I'm not getting any cell signal. Anybody have bars? Everyone shook their heads. No? Mm, towers might be down. Well, then somebody walk down to the physical plant and tell Rick to hurry his ass up, the president snapped. We can't have a board meeting without power. I'll go, Sloane said, closing her laptop. Do we still have those old walkies from the summer tour program? I'll take one of those. Um, actually, the assistant replied with a sheepish expression. We gave those to maintenance at the end of the season to replace their old ones. They're at the physical plant, too. That's okay. I'll just... Sloane stopped herself before saying, I'll just radio back, realizing that the maintenance techs would be the only ones who could hear her. 
I'll just bring a few back for the room, she finished instead. On her way out of the building, Sloane passed a group of flamingos. In a hurry, the thought didn't register until she'd gotten past the penguin habitat to the footbridge that spanned over the duck pond. What were the flamingos doing outside of their area without their trainer? Then it dawned on her. The electricity was out, which meant that all of the animals whose enclosures used electric locks and barriers might be loose. Sloane swore and broke into a run. Rick and the team at the physical plant had to get those generators in operation, and fast. We're working on it, Rick yelled from the back, gas can in hand, as Sloane burst through the door of the physical plant office. This shit's like gold, you know. We've only got enough for 48 hours before we'll have to start siphoning vehicles. The flamingos are out, Sloane panted, leaning over to catch her breath. A lot of the others will be soon, too. What can I do to help? Grab a couple of those, Rick said, waving at a row of red five-gallon gas cans. They'll fill one generator each and last for six hours. Every enclosure that uses electricity has one at the interpretation station. Put as many as you can into one of the maintenance carts and take a walkie. Head over to the Africa exhibits. We've got to get to them first. I've already set up a rent-a-cop, a security guy over there, to observe and report back if he sees anything. Rick didn't need to explain to Sloan why. She knew that the Africa exhibit contained all of the zoo's largest and most of its endangered animals. If they got loose, there would be serious trouble. Loading one of the golf carts with a dozen cans, Sloan sped off toward the Africa enclosures, trying carefully not to slosh over the bumps. Every drop of fuel counted. As she passed by the elephant encounter, Sloane was relieved to see them sleeping. Stopping to jump out and fill the generator, one of the maintenance guys in another cart waved her on. Zooming past Giraffe Ridge, Sloane watched the trainers herding the animals back into their sheds, snapping the deadbolt lock shut behind them. That's two down, she whispered to herself, speeding on toward Cheetah Run. When she arrived, it was empty. One of the rent-a-cop security guys was trying to keep a crowd of confused guests calm as he ushered them back toward the entryway. The cheetah trainers, following disaster protocol, had likely called off the noon show and returned the cats to their indoor sleeping facilities. Hopping out at the interpretation station by the African lion enclosure, Sloane pulled a gas can off the back of the cart. Filling the generator inside and flipping it on, Sloane waited anxiously as it coughed to life. The lights buzzed then flickered on. Relieved, Sloane picked up the empty plastic can and hurried back to the cart, trying to decide whether to take the road to the left or right. Left would lead her past Gibbon Island, Panda World, and Big Cat Canyon. Right wove through the Hippo Camp, Orangutan Trail, and the new Polar Bears, Lords of the Arctic, exhibit. Reasoning that the bears and hippos were surrounded by water, but that the pandas and cats only had fencing, she decided to go right when she saw them. Old King John and the three female lions, on the wrong side of their enclosure, lounging around in the tall grassy area beside the cafe with no trainer in sight. Immediately, Sloane grabbed her walkie. Rick, we've got a situation over here next to the cafe. All of the lions are out. Repeat, all of the lions are out by the cafe. Over. 
Jesus, Rick hissed. What are they doing? Is anyone else there? Just me, Sloane replied. I don't know what happened to their trainer, but I think all of the guests must have been evacuated right after the lights went out. As for the lions, they're not doing anything, just... Sloane watched as the old male lion sniffed the air and pawed playfully at a large plastic trash can. It tipped over, spilling cups and potato chip bags onto the ground. Looking for snacks, maybe? Well, don't lollygag around until you become one. I have a tranquilizer gun with me, if it comes to that, but I'd rather not have to use it. Maybe we can lure them. Are there any treats left at the cheetah run? Rick asked. A few, I think, Sloane answered, reading Rick's mind. I'll go grab them and open the gate to their feeding area. If I act really obvious, maybe they'll just come back on their own. Okay, but be careful, Rick answered. I'll be there in two minutes. Out. The walkie squelched once more and then went silent. Hearing the chirp, all four lions turned their heads slowly towards Sloane. Easy, guys, Sloane said, maintaining eye contact as she backed away. It's just me. I'm going to get you a snack, all right? Remembering her training, Sloane raised her arms up and down at her side slowly, like the wings of a butterfly. Seeming to recognize her voice, Old King John took a few cautious steps in her direction. That's it, big fella, Sloane continued in as soothing a tone as she could muster. Although she'd worked with John and the females many times before, it had always been individually and in a controlled environment. She'd never faced four uncontained lions at once. The gate to the lion enclosure was less than a dozen yards away. Thinking about the chicken breasts in the small refrigerator in the interpretation station, Sloane decided not to chance it. Going back down the path to the cheetah run would mean turning her back on the four lions, something that every newbie trainer was warned against from day one. Instead, she decided to continue as she was, creeping step by step backward, easily, hoping the lions would follow. She might not need the bait at all if they were cooperative. As Sloane stepped over the threshold of the lion's gate, she thought she heard Rick's golf cart approaching from the opposite path. Old King John glanced in that direction, then back at Sloane. The lion's bright yellow eyes were wide. Sloane could see that the sound had startled him as he turned to her, focusing his uncertain gaze once more. It's okay, buddy, Sloane whispered. Nothing's going to hurt you. Just a few more steps and then... But Sloane never got to finish her statement. Several pistol shots rang out and Sloane dropped to the ground inside the gate. Lying in the dirt, she saw the three females disappear behind the trees that lined the pathway. John's eyes flashed as he bounded forward, leaping over her and into the enclosure. Sloane rolled aside next to the fence and then watched horrified as the lion staggered a few feet, then collapsed into the dirt. John, Sloane said, her voice uncertain as she struggled to stand on shaking legs holding onto the fence. The lion grunted, then a hard shudder ran the length of his body, and he lay still. Cautiously moving closer, Sloane could see the bleeding holes in his side. 
outside the enclosure, a man screamed, followed by a rapid burst of more gunfire. However, later that afternoon, Sloane would testify to the police that she didn't remember hearing any of it. All she recalled was collapsing beside the old lion and burying her face in his dusty mane as she wept. "'Dear God!' Rick exclaimed, running through the gate. "'Sloan, are you okay? Were those gunshots? Who was shooting? What's wrong with John?' "'I don't know,' Sloan repeated several times, her face streaked with tears. "'I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know anything anymore, except that old King John is dead.' This is the end of Old King John, a short story by Vivian Catfield. Tune in next week for another new story here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. <laughs>